This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Let me set your scene for you as I do each and every week. Before I do that, many thanks to Scott McFarland for being an outstanding... Altogether, two outstanding guest hosts for the show last week when we talked about my new book, The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. Many thanks to Scott McFarlane. So we're at Cafe du Parc. We've been here before. It's part of the Willard Hotel right near the White House. And we're going to talk about something familiar to every single one of you watching or listening. What is that topic? The weather. And we're going to talk about it in what I hope is the most informational and scientific sense imaginable. And not a political sense. I do not want to engage, nor am I going to engage this audience in any kind of political tussle about the weather. It's going to be a scientific and knowledge-based conversation about the weather. And who's going to have that with? I'm not doing that by myself, folks. I'm not qualified. But our guest is Dr. Richard Spinrad. He is the administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Dr. Spinrad, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. Thank you, Major. It's my pleasure. So let's talk about Hurricane Ian. Let's just start there. It's the biggest weather story. It's the biggest national story related to the weather in our most recent history. I am recording this on October 6th. These numbers may change, ladies and gentlemen, but more than 100 people confirmed dead as a result of the storm and subsequent flooding, storm surge, and the like. As of my conversation with you right now, again, October 6th, 400,000 or more Floridians without power, tremendous property damage in the billions quite clearly we have no idea what that's going to be what did hurricane ian teach us what is our takeaway so far scientifically from this monster storm yeah thank you well uh first of all my heart also goes out to those who lost friends families home property it's it's always uh horrible to see that kind of damage however i would say comfortably that 
If that same storm had hit, say, 10 years ago, the numbers you just recited would have been a lot higher. And that's because we have gotten so much better at forecasting the track, the intensity, and probably even more important, coordinating with FEMA, with Coast Guard, with Army Corps, with Red Cross. So what did we learn? Uh, we learned how important it is to make specific observations about the weather early on. Mm -hmm. So we fly P3 aircraft. We have hurricane hunters that we fly. The earlier we can fly them into a storm that's forming, the better that forecast will be. We've been able to demonstrate that those flights improve our track accuracy, our intensity forecast accuracy by anywhere from 10 to 20%. So we've learned that. We also launched a drone from one of our aircraft because we don't fly those aircraft too low. It's dangerous, but we can drop a drone and that drone can fly all the way down to the, the surface of the ocean. And what does that drone do? What does it collect? It, it makes measurements of wind, temperature, pressure, rainfall rate, and that gives us the data that we can feed back in real time, that is to say, as, as it's happening, into the forecasters who can then run their models, their computer models, and update and improve their forecast. So we've learned a number of things about how data collection and different means of data collection can improve the forecast. So just so my audience understands, when they're watching their local weather meteorologist, they are using data that they and everyone gains from this particular work that NOAA does. Absolutely. So we, we run the National Weather Service, which is paid for by tax dollars. Right. And, and oh, by the way, everything we do at NOAA translates to a cost to the American citizen of six cents per person per day. Six what an incredible cents. deal. Six cents. Okay. And with that, they get everything from managing our fisheries to mapping and charting our coasts to the weather forecast. So yeah, the typical flow of information would be that that forecast that's developed from the kind of data that I just described and processed with our supercomputers goes to the National Hurricane Center there in Miami. Right. They then send that information out to all sources, broadcast meteorologists on TV, on the radio. We use our NOAA dissemination mechanisms like NOAA weather radio, uh, as well as web-based products and services. And then uh, there's a number of commercial entities that actually take some of those products and make other products out of those specific for particular industries, for So example. it would have been worse 10 years ago, even though some of these areas are more densely populated than they were 10 years ago. So what I can tell you is that the forecast um, was... We, basically, the forecast improves about one day every 10 years. That is to say, the 96-hour, four-day forecast that we provided was as good today as the 72-hour forecast was in the year 2012. And let's not make a great jump over that. Let's say what that means. If you have an extra day to make a decision, that's a life-saving period of time. Absolutely. And, and think about an agency like FEMA. So FEMA has to mobilize, get ready, have trucks, have water, have ice, have personnel pre-positioned. If we can give them four days of lead time with good skill and accuracy, that's worth an enormous amount to them. We hear a lot, Dr. Richard Rick Spinrad, about intensification of storms, heavier moisture in them, more rain. Does Ian fall into that category, and what does that progression or trajectory scientifically tell us. Yeah, intensification, especially what we scientists would call rapid intensification, which basically means about one category, hurricane category, increase over a 24-hour period. 
That is one of the toughest parts of forecasting. And we actually did an extraordinarily good job with Ian this time. If you think about it, when that forecast first started coming out, we were looking carefully at what was going to happen with Ian as it went over Cuba mm -hmm. and kept going north. And our forecasters were able to look at the temperature of the ocean and make a conclusion that Ian would rapidly intensify and also that it would de-intensify. And if you looked at what happened with Ian, it was Category 4 when it made landfall. By the time it crossed the peninsula of Florida, it was a tropical storm. It had downgraded. And then, here's the really important part, it actually re-intensified as it went back over the Atlantic and then hit the Highly Carolinas. unusual, if I remember my atmospheric science and experience with this. That's highly unusual. Yeah, I mean, each of these it, it can happen, is unique. And yeah. theoretically, it always scientifically could happen, but for it to be basically a hurricane twice. Yeah, well, and you have to have a specific conditions with the water temperature right. and a track that's going to go over that and then make landfall again. So when I watch and my know my viewers watch or hear, they will sometimes have their local meteorologist or the national cable meteorologist refer to the U.S. model and the European model. What's the difference? So that's an interesting, uh, it, it's become part of the sort of mythology or lore. There are many weather services around the world, uh, including in the European countries that develop the European Center for Medium Range Weather Forecast has their models. The fact of the matter is, we have many models ourselves. And what we do is we basically statistically look at the models and develop a blended or ensemble forecast, if you will, as do our friends in Europe. And so what you're really looking at is many different comparisons of many models from which we draw a conclusion. It's kind of like talking to a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. If you're smart, you'll talk to several of them right. and okay. see what they all tend to agree on. And that's the same kind of concept. Or falls into model. the second opinion category of yeah, medicine, maybe. Yeah. So when we think about hurricane landfalls, is that the way to think about the area of likely damage, or because storms are intensifying and growing wider and larger, is that the best way to think about it? So when you look at the forecast products that we put out, we put out something called the cone of uncertainty and a, and a track line. And what we need people to understand is that that cone basically represents the area where we believe the hurricane is most likely to uh, make its trajectory, make landfall. And that means the the eye of the hurricane could fall anywhere within that particular cone of uncertainty. It's likely mm -hmm. to fall anywhere in that cone of uncertainty. But as you rightfully point out, the structure of these storms is such that they're, they're tending to be larger. They're tending to move a bit slower. They're carrying an awful lot of precipitation. I mean, when I grew up, I remember hearing about so many inches of precipitation associated with a storm. We're talking feet. Feet. Two feet of, of, of rain fell. Five feet of rain fell with Hurricane Harvey. Right. So it's a different kind of storm. I'm going to stop you right there because we need to take a break for our radio audience. I'm Major Garrett. Segment two of The Takeout with Dr. Rick Spinrad when we come back. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. So glad you are joining us. However you find this show, great radio stations around the country, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, of course, on every great podcast platform and on CBS News streaming. I'm so glad you're hanging out with us. So Hurricane Ian is obviously a, a source of concern. Our hearts go out. We hope everyone works as hard and diligently as they can to rebuild in Florida. But look, this has been a tough weather year uh, for this country. In Kentucky, just in March, more than 80 people died in seven in five states, most of them in Kentucky and surrounding states, from tornadic activity, massive storms. In Nashville last summer, flash flooding killed more than 20. Wildfires related to drought in my home state of California in the great American West. Weather, again, not politics, facts and science is becoming something that weaves a pattern of devastation around this country and we need to understand it study it and try to learn more about how this entire country can properly adapt to these realities that's why i'm so glad rick spinard spinrad is our guest as i said before he's the director of the national oceanic and atmospheric administration um what does NOAA do in terms of monitoring patterns and noticeable changes in weather, not only in America, the Northern Hemisphere, and globally? So I'll start by pointing out that we are the nation's archivist for weather data, weather information. The National Centers for Environmental Information is one of our units. So if you want to look back at the last century or the last year or the last month, to understand what happened with weather, that's where you go, which is why we are the ones that have been able to put out some startling facts. You alluded to this, or you implied this, this increase in activity. Mm-hmm. Here, here's an interesting aspect of that. In the mid-1980s, we were seeing a billion-dollar disaster every 82 days on average. Now, it's every 18 days. So every two and a half weeks, and that's adjusted for inflation too, every two and a half weeks we're seeing a disaster of at least a billion dollar damage. And of course then you see something like Ian where estimates are up over 50, maybe 75 billion dollars of damage. So there is a pattern and having the information to look back and see what are the trends, can we analyze these, can we make some predictions based right. on looking at And can we make some adaptations in terms of infrastructure, yeah. where we live and how we live? All these things vector off what we are learning from and discerning from these patterns. Yep. These patterns are not political, correct? That's right. Mother Nature doesn't, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't care. Doesn't get driven by political agendas. Uh, and by the same token, 
there are things we can do by policy, by action. So just today, for example, the White House announced the adaptation plans of 20 different federal agencies because we recognize that the great work, and I would argue the work that this administration has done as evidenced by the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes the largest climate and most significant climate legislation which we've ever seen, a lot of the emphasis has been on mitigating. How do we decarbonize? How do we get more renewables in? And what's really important is, as we do that, we need to do that, we have to adapt. Now, we have to deal with the fact that sea level is rising. We have to deal with the fact that, as you said, this last year we've seen something like 50,000 wildfires in our country, mm -hmm. devastating some 7 million acres. How do we adapt to that? How do we become more resilient? What do we do with infrastructure? Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm excited about is NOAA basically operates in a way as serving up these climate products for transportation, energy, agriculture, homeland security. Every sector of government depends on having that information in order to serve the, the public with the best products. And, and to serve the public, you have to communicate. And we were talking during break, and I wanted to give you a moment to describe this, what you're learning about the importance of how you communicate, what you use in terms of colors, how your advisories translate into various languages. What are you learning about that? So this has always been an issue, the social sciences, if you will. Right. How do we convey? Hard science, social science. How do you right. translate and bridge the two? What's the difference between a watch and a warning? How do I get a message out about severe weather in a place like New York City where there may, there may be 15 or 20 different languages mm -hmm. into which that, that warning has to be translated? Probably, though, I would say that the problem that is most at the front door right now and for which this administration is really pushing hard is equitable co-development and delivery of products, which means it's not good enough to just say there's going to be a heat event in Chicago. We have to look at where are some of the most vulnerable communities because a heat event, for example, extreme heat, it could be 20 degrees hotter in a, like a redlined vulnerable district, an impoverished district. That means they're going to get hit hardest. So how do we figure out how to deliver that product? To communicate to them. To them. Yes. In a meaningful, timely way. That the, and and up tune the product to their specific needs. Mm -hmm. Not say, hey, the general area of Chicago is going to see a heat wave. But actually How do say, you do that? Uh, well, part of it is with research to understand uh, how do you focus the predictions down to finer and finer detail. The other part is collaboration and doing things like making observations. So we have uh, cooperative observation programs. Citizens can provide us information that we feed into our models. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it is just having the dialogue. So one of the things that I've taken very seriously is going around the country, talking with groups we might not have talked with before. I'm mm -hmm. talking with faith-based organizations. Mm -hmm. You think about, well, why would the head of NOAA talk with church groups? Where do people go during a heat crisis? A lot of times they'll they go, go to their, church. Their, their house of prayer Parapos can be a cooling right. center. Right. So if we can tell. A sanctuary for them in, that's in right. the most literal terms. That's right. And, and so the faith-based community benefits from mm -hmm. our being able to provide an accurate forecast of an extreme heat event. That, as well as anyone. A silly question. Do you do any of this via text or? We do it through all kinds of communication. Already? Mechanisms. Yeah, we do. We can do better. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some automated approaches. Obviously, NOAA Weather Radio was a, uh, a tool that we developed many, many years ago. But we're trying to use 
as many different tools as we can, mm -hmm. social media tools. Right. We're not doing it as well as we could, in my opinion, but we can do some more. So, Oceanic is right there, the second word in the name of your agency. Tell my audience, scientifically, what's happening with ocean temperatures and why that should matter. 90% of the heat that's being produced by global warming, a component of climate change, ends up in the oceans. So the oceans are heating faster than most of the rest of the globe and are holding most of that heat. So we started this conversation talking about Hurricane Ian. Mm -hmm. Hurricanes, typhoons, are powered in a large part by the heat of the ocean. So the more heat that's stored in the ocean, the more we can expect these storms to have more power, more water. Look at, look at Typhoon Murbach, for example. Mm -hmm. This was a storm that started as a classic tropical storm and now ended up hitting the Bering Sea. That storm had a lot of power, and part of that is attributable to the amount of energy, the amount of heat that's stored in the ocean. And it seems with this warmer ocean, the intensification is faster and over a shorter distance. I mean, it's not all that far from Cuba to the Tampa-Fort Myers area of Florida. I mean, sometimes hurricanes travel great distances around open expanses of water, and that's what generates this intensification. That wasn't all that far or that fast, and yet it happened. It did, and I, I would say that that in itself would not necessarily be attributable to the excess heat in the ocean. We've always seen intensification. I mean, okay. going back to Katrina, for example. Right. Katrina intensified pretty, pretty rapidly. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I will tell you it was largely a consequence of the, the heat in the ocean. And as we get more of that, we're going to see more of that kind of intensification. But i got to say, there are so many other factors associated with climate change impacting the ocean, like acidification, mm -hmm. that... For an agency that, as you say, as oceanic in its name, the issues of climate change are, are really charging us with a lot of requirements for new products and services, especially in the ocean. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're at Cafe du Parc, which is part of the Willard Hotel right near, Washington, right near the White House, of course, in downtown Washington, D.C. Dr. Rick Spinrad is our guest. He is the administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So I'm going to set this question up, and you're going to answer it on the other side of the break because I've got 15 seconds to do it. But what I want you to tell my audience on the other side of this break is if they have any doubts about climate change, why they should maybe look a second or third time. I'm going to give you a chance to answer that on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout in just one second. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. 
That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. You heard my teaser question right before we went to break. Dr. Rick Spinrad of NOAA. So, again, I'm not trying to get into the politics. I'm just trying to get into the science of it. We say, oh, we've always had bad weather. There was a freeze thing. I hear this all the time. Time Magazine had a cover back in the 70s about the coming ice age. It never happened. We don't know what we think we know. It's all more mysterious and harder to plumb the depths of than the current conversation suggests. That's one articulated bit of skepticism I've heard about climate change or global warming. What would you say someone who is open-minded but skeptical net about what they hear about climate change or global warming? I'd, I'd come at that question from two perspectives. One is, as someone who was trained in physics in, in my early career, there's a simple physical explanation. We're putting the greenhouse effect means mm-hmm. we're putting more energy, more heat into the system, and it's got it manifest somehow. And we've been talking about the various ways. The other way I'd come at it is I'd say take a look, especially using uh, perspectives from, say, traditional communities, we call it indigenous knowledge sometimes. I spent a few weeks in Alaska this year, mm-hmm. this past summer, and had the opportunity to talk to fishing communities, coastal communities, inland communities, and in every case, they can, they're seeing things like their communities are being forced to do what we call a managed retreat. They're having to move their communities because of coastal erosion. The elders will tell you this is not something they've ever seen before. We're not seeing, part of their oral history or anything like that. Passed not. down generation by generation by That's generation. Right. Uh, you look at what's happening with fisheries in places like Alaska. How much of the loss of salmon in the Yukon and the Kuskokwim River is a consequence of the warm waters of the North Pacific affecting mm-hmm. the salmon? You look at how roads in Fairbanks are buckling because they're getting rainstorms in late December. These are all, and then the wildfires in the state. And you look elsewhere. It's not just Alaska, although I would say we're seeing indications very strongly in Alaska. I talked to a congressman, a Republican congressman from a very red district in a very red state recently who told me, hey, I'm a fifth-generation farmer. I can't farm the way my grandfather did. Mm -hmm. And so I'm actually encouraged, Garrett, that the Sorry, Major. I've been called so much worse than Garrett. That's totally good. I'm encouraged by the fact that we're no longer having the discussion of attribution. Mm -hmm. Is this storm climate change? Whose fault is this? But what we're talking about is what do we do about it? How do do I get the information? So I think there's a few answers, ways to answer your question. It really boils down to what people are seeing in their daily lives. If I can, one other point. Of course, of course. We're seeing it already in what we pay. So think about what happened in Florida. We all pay for insurance, Mm -hmm. and what we pay is part of what has to be paid out for the damages being caused by the severe storms, such as Hurricane Ian. We're paying for it in the impacts on how goods are transported. So we're seeing it either directly or indirectly. Right, and when you talk about those instances of billion-dollar damage events, as you said, inflation-adjusted, one every 82 days, now one every 18 days, When you start covering Congress at any time in your career, and I started in 1990, one of the first things you learn that you have to cover in the appropriations, meaning spending cycle, are supplementals, which means additional allocations of federal dollars because something unexpected has happened. Oftentimes, they're driven by natural disasters, these supplementals. We have more of them now, and they're of larger price tags than they've ever been before. That's just a fact. You can look it up. So... 
as a direct taxpayer interest, this matters. We are paying for recovery efforts, whether it's wildfires, tornadoes, hurricanes, and the like. True? Yeah, we are. And uh, I think it's encouraging that a lot of the smart policymakers and strategists out there are already trying to build in the sort of cost avoidance aspects of this. So you look at what the Department of Defense is doing with respect to their bases and mm-hmm. their facilities, and they're already saying, let's take these long-term projections of what climate change is going to do in terms of things like sea level rise and see if we can accommodate that in the bases. So we are already seeing a lot of that resilience. And back to oceans. As just a practical scientific fact, oceans are not warming and becoming more acidic on their own. Yeah, I mean that's happening, and it has to be happening for some reason. Oceans aren't doing it to themselves, as if they anthropomorphically could. But I'm just saying, there's an external factor that is leading to measurable and measured changes in oceans. Those are all incontrovertible facts. Yeah, the data speak for themselves. You know, the the old saying: you can have your own opinion, you can't have your own data. That's, um, and the data show clearly that as you add carbon, carbon dioxide mm-hmm. to seawater, you're going to see acidification. You're going to see changes. So there's something that's on your website that I found very interesting, and I want to let you run free with it, because people here in their local communities, their meteorologists say this summer is hotter than normal, or than the normals of the last 10 or 15 years. And on your website, you have, what are climate normals? Mm-hmm. What are they? So this is a really fascinating question. I mean, the, the question really is, what are modes, right? I mean, we can talk about climate normals as the average over the last several years, but let me give you an analogy, all right? The analogy is that you're driving down a, a highway uh, and you're crossing from one state to the next, and they have different speed limits. In the first state, everybody is going, usually, within about five miles an hour of the speed right. limit. Depending on where you are. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then you cross the state line and the speed limit goes up by, say, 15 miles per hour. People are still all within about fifteen, within about five miles an hour of each other, right. but they're at a different modality, a different level. The same thing can be applied to climate. We're going into a different sort of modality where sea surface temperatures, air temperatures, patterns of storms are going to be different. But what does that modality look like? And that's where we have some control, which is why the Paris Agreement, everything we are trying to do to reduce our emissions and our partners overseas are trying to do the same thing, ultimately plays into us defining our future. As someone who grew up in the western part of the United States, San Diego, uh, not so much when I was young, but later you would hear about uh, La Nina and El Nino. How do they play into this? And should they be thought of as complementary to the scientific evidence or outside of it? What effect do they have and how should we think about them? Yeah, I love that question because when I was a young scientist, uh, I was taught that El Nino happens every seven years, like clockwork, and that it was limited in its impact to just the Pacific Ocean. Obviously, we know El Nino, La Nina, and I would add to that, Major, a whole series of other similar events in the North Atlantic and the Arctic. There are oscillation events that patterns go up and down, like El Nino, La Nina. How they are influenced by or are influencing climate is a real subject of extensive scientific research. And a lot of that lies in getting the data that we need, which is not easy to do in the ocean. But there is a connection. We know that. How predictable it is uh, is a real challenge for the research community right Mm -hmm. now. And in that 
answer is something else I want to kind of unspool, which is this data and the science behind it talks about trends and probabilities. It doesn't make absolute predictions because hard science is always subject to things it doesn't know as much as about what it does know. You're the scientist at the table, not me. Run with that. Yeah, this is... Uh, this gets into the social sciences and behavioral sciences piece. So you find a broadcast meteorologist, your TV weatherman or weather person, and ask them if what they're providing is a probabilistic forecast or a deterministic forecast. And the good ones will tell you, I want a probabilistic forecast, but I won't issue a probabilistic forecast. So they want the data. They want the statistics that say, yeah, there's an 80% chance it's going to rain here in Washington tomorrow. They're going to get on TV and they're going to say, expect rain tomorrow. And so we have to learn how to convey probabilistic information in a way that actually allows people to make decisions. I can't tell you what probability you can tolerate to make your decision. I can give you the best information that I've got about what I think the forecast is going to look like. And quite honestly, this is at the heart of what we're trying to do in NOAA. We have a concept called Climate Ready Nation. And the idea is that by 2030, every decision maker, what's a decision maker? An emergency manager, a city planner, a, a, a faith-based a community. Mayor, a governor, a, right, a builder, pastor, right. right. What General do they contractor, need right. to be climate ready? They need the best products that allow them to make the decision that they need to make for their business or their practice or their community or themselves. And so for us, we call that a climate-ready nation. And it gets to your question about making different products available for different users. Climate readiness, whether you know it or not, it's a thing. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment four of The Takeout in just one second. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Cafe du Parc is our special host restaurant, part of the Willard Hotel. Happy to be here. All things weather, all things climate, and the readiness therein. Rick Spinrad of NOAA is our special guest. I want to ask you about something that I just read via my excellent co-producer on this show, Jamie Benson. Something in Mother Jones about 5G and weather forecasting. I had no clue whatsoever until about three hours ago they were even remotely related. But this article talks about spectrum range radio wavelengths and says as follows. The problem is the radio wave frequency used by wireless cellular networks is similar to the ones used to monitor atmospheric conditions. 
The 24 gigahertz band is increasingly being used for telecommunications, notably for 5G cellular networks. The nearby 23.8 gigahertz band is reserved for scientific purposes, including weather satellites. As these two spectrum bands come under greater use, they can interfere, making the dissemination of weather and climate information slower and less accurate. True? So, just from, again, from a physics standpoint, Mm -hmm. Major, when you look at this, those facts are right, that communications depend on a certain spectrum allocation, frequency allocation, and the physics of measuring things in the atmosphere, specifically humidity, how much water is in the atmosphere, depend on using particular bandwidths of the electromagnetic spectrum. So it is true in the sense that there are areas where there can be crosstalk, dare I say maybe interference. However, the good news is that, and, and trust me, as somebody who relies on my cell phone yes. and loves that we've gone from 3G to 4G to 5G to whatever may come next, I really want to see commerce and our whole societal benefits that depend on that spectrum allocation mm-hmm. uh, able to do all that they can. By the same token, we don't want to degrade our capability to collect weather information, and that's really where the forecast part comes, because as I mentioned Mm -hmm. to you earlier, the forecast depends on getting data and making observations, and if that gets compromised, our forecasts get worse. So we have to be attentive to that. Now, what I believe uh, is, is at the heart of this is good people trying to find creative technological solutions, and there are some very sophisticated techniques and communications in sensing and how to use the spectrum mm-hmm. that may allow us to solve both problems at the same time. So it's a real thing. It is. And smart people are trying to resolve it. Yes. In government and in the private sector. Yes. And you believe scientifically it is resolvable. I think we can get to a certain point scientifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure we can solve the whole problem with some clever scientific solution. There will have to be policy decisions made. Mm-hmm. And that's and, trade-offs. That's true and winners and losers will be involved in that. Yeah, to some extent, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. But uh, for those who might be thinking or as they're working out or driving or doing the dishes, lots of people do lots of things as they listen to this great show. Holy cow, does 5G mean the end of my accurate weather forecasting? You're saying no. It, not as we have it right now. I would say what we're trying to do is increase and improve our weather forecasts all the time. Who's not in favor of improved weather forecasts? I certainly am. I'm going to vote for that. All right. When people in my audience and Americans uh, in their daily lives hear about glaciers shrinking or the ice sheets in Antarctica shrinking, what should they deduce or conclude from that? First of all, that's real. Okay. Uh, this is not some photographic evidence is absolute. Photographic evidence. Satellites are measure, measuring these using a variety of techniques. Second of all, it's impactful that with every bit of loss of uh, land-based ice, you're going to see some component of sea level rise. And it's not just sea level rise. It also has impacts because that's generally fresher water, which means it's going to affect the circulation Um, And third of all, we're getting better and better at predicting what those consequences will be. So those are all facts. They're scientifically founded facts. But it is something people should be aware of. Mm -hmm. And does it change? Like I've read and we've seen stories about parts of the permafrost in Russia melting and thawing and things being released into the atmosphere that haven't haven't been released. Methane is one of the component parts of that. 
Is that part of this scientific equation as well? Yeah, that's a different part of the different equation. Different part, I'm yeah. sorry, yeah. So it's a consequence of the global warming that we alluded to earlier, and the consequence of that is the permafrost can soften, can melt, can start to thaw, and you can see release of methane, and we are starting to see some of that in some parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But again, there's a lot of good research going on right now. In fact, I was at the permafrost tunnel in Fairbanks, Alaska, just a month ago, seeing the work that's being done in that area. How's the but, restaurant there, by the way? <laughs> it's all frozen food. <laughs> he was ready. How about that, ladies and gentlemen? I thought I was going to drop one, and he was ready. Um, another place I visited, too, I know very well. I lived in Las Vegas for two years, grew up in San Diego, Lake Mead. Uh, a gorgeous place, an amazing place. Hoover Dam is a engineering marvel. I was just there. That lake is unrecognizable yeah. to me to the lake I observed in the mid-1980s. Positively unrecognizable. What does that tell us? Well, uh, drought, the insidious problems associated with drought. We were talking earlier about sea level rise. We were talking about severe storms. The, the other risks, flood, drought, heat health, coastal erosion, are all being impacted right now. And so we're going to see... see continued severe patterns of severe drought. This last year, we had a seasonal forecast which held up mm -hmm. that said we were going to see increasing drought in that part of the country. We have produced uh, something we call the National Integrated Drought Information System, working with our colleagues at USGS and USDA and, and other parts of the government that give people the best information on a seasonal basis. So we put out an update every month of what the drought is going to look like. But we can expect to see patterns like that continuing as a result of the changes. I want to remind my audience that during lockdown when there was very little of this, I mean, no, actually there was none of this, being out and doing the show live and in restaurants, I produced another podcast called The Debrief. If you go back to the archives of that, two weeks in a row we did the environment, climate change. Gina McCarthy, then the senior White House advisor to the president on climate issues, was one of our many, many expert voices. And she said, you know, I don't hawk the way I used to, the doom and gloom. I talk optimistically about the things that can be different. And she said, one thing that happens for all of us in this space is that we get dreary and gloomy, or we sound dreary and gloomy, and the public says, well, there's nothing I can do. It's all hopeless. What the hell? Never mind. In the minute we have left, give, give me your version of Gina McCarthy on that. Yeah, well, first of all, I miss her already since she's left government, but I will tell you that I have been a climate optimist throughout my time at NOAA and that's reflected in what in this climate ready nation concept because there's two words in our mission statement for climate ready nation one is prosper and the other is benefit you don't tend to hear that a lot in the rhetoric associated with climate change I believe if we do what we need to do in terms of research develop the products the forecasts and the projections we will be in a better place with respect to understanding how to adapt to climate change. So I am a climate optimist. We don't have to assume there's nothing we can do. There is plenty we can do if we get the information that we need. Dr. Rick Spinrad of NOAA, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. For those of us in our radio audience, we need to bid you farewell. But those on CBS News Streaming and our beloved podcast, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, and we will see you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, Cafe du Parc, our host restaurant. Been here before, always a great time. Part of the Willard Hotel, right near the White House, downtown Washington, D.C. Dr. Rick Spinrad is our special guest. Administrator of NOAA, scientist, and a familiar relationship with CBS News. Explain that for me, will you please? Oh, thanks, Major. Yeah. My dad, who passed away about 35 years ago, was a VP for uh, public relations with CBS. And he was a journalist and uh, worked uh, in a number of offices there and actually uh, retired from CBS, I want to say, in about uh, 1979 or so, after a long career. With, yeah, and uh, just the for those of you already hatching media, government, conspiracy, nebulae, and webs, I didn't go to college until 1980, so there's no connection whatsoever. <laughs> I grew up in New York. I did, yeah, okay. right in the city. Um, we have three questions we ask every guest who sits at the takeout table or joins us via Zoom, as so many did during lockdown. Take these in whichever order you prefer. They're the fun and games part of this program. But I always love the answers, and our audience does too. So, most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie. And if you're taking a long flight or on a long drive and you're really going to enjoy some music, I mean really going to enjoy some music, <laughs> what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Uh, the Sting. Movie. is the movie. Uh, and as said by both Paul Newman and Robert Redford, a near-perfect script. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's a great movie and a great demonstration of putting a movie and a story together on a script for movie presentation. It really is great. And great plot, too. Great plot. Um, so it depends on the flight, mm-hmm. where I'm going. Right. Um, and whether I'm going to have to work when I get there or I can uh, hit the sack. But usually Eric Clapton's on the playlist. All the time. Grateful Dead. Grateful um, Dead mentioned with some frequency. I think that's the first Eric Clapton reference. That surprises me because Eric Clapton is a monumentally important rock and roll musician and guitarist. Yeah. yeah. And Bonnie Raitt. I've been Bonnie in love Raitt. with Bonnie Raitt since I was a kid. So. Yep. Excellent. Um, and book, book's an interesting one because um, uh, part of my answer, there are several. I know that's, that's yeah. not fair to do no, that. No, go ahead. But, Take as many um, as you want. The River Why is a very interesting book, and also my dad's books. He did a number of books, nonfiction, mostly what you would probably find on the web these days in terms of an almanac of events and people, Mm -hmm. and it influenced a lot of my thinking uh, with respect to um, what the values are Mm -hmm. for different people in different positions. So when my children were young, they're all uh, out of college now and striking out on their own, I'm happy to say. 
And we would go grocery shopping together. Oftentimes that within our family unit fell to me. They would implore me to get the Farmer's Almanac (laughs) at checkout because they love to look at the weather forecast and they love to see how accurate they would be so far out. Yeah. What does the NOAA administrator think of the Farmer's Almanac weather forecast? Um, It is one source of information. (laughs) Um, There are many like that. Uh, and I think uh, I, I would consider it as That's like part saying that Edsel is a former automobile of note. I mean, come on. Let's put it this way. I don't rely on the Farmer's Almanac for my personal planning, mm-hmm. but uh, I do find it entertaining reading. They found it entertaining reading, and sometimes, generally, I guess within a, a general statistical pattern, they would say, well, that's, like, they'll say it'll be snowier this winter than last winter. Yeah, and, and, General generalizations like that, they always found both entertaining and sometimes helpful. Yeah, and I guess you could argue that uh, it does teach people some of the fundamental aspects of the variability of weather, mm-hmm. that this summer is not going to be like last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the almanac would give you a correlation in there. It would say that the correlations were, were kind of specious. <laughs> One might argue sure. that there are more chickens being hatched this spring, so therefore the summer is going to be hot. But it does give a sense that there are things, many things that affect the weather. I mean, I, I would imagine that there are probably a lot of professional meteorologists out there whose first engagement with right. weather was reading the Farmer's Almanac. Right, right. So it, it's out there. It's fun. It uh, does no harm. Harmless and amusing uh, for Women and children and men alike, I guess we would say. Uh, Rick Spinrad, it's been great to talk to you, great to meet you. Thanks for this conversation. Thanks for helping my audience having, have as apolitical a conversation about a topic as important and persistent and in times costly and deadly in our lives as weather changes. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you, so Major, for, Major, for your attention to this. Really Thanks so much. We'll it. see you next week, ladies and gentlemen. This is your Takeout Outtake Especial. Always a pleasure. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.